So today we are in, I believe, number five in the installment of This Is Us. Um, the text that we've been using is 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And just stay seated, if you would, and just listen as I read. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, found in the message translation, says these are all warning markers, danger in our history books, written down so that we don't repeat their mistakes. Everybody say, don't repeat their mistakes. Our positions in the story are parallel. They at the beginning, we at the end, and we are just as capable of messing it up as they were. Don't be so naive and self-confident. You're not exempt. You're not exempt. You're not exempt. Say that with me. You're not exempt. You could fall flat on your face as easily as anyone else. Forget about self-confidence. It's useless. Cultivate God confidence. Say those three words. Cultivate God confidence. The message text this morning that I want to speak to you from on this particular message is called Fractured Family Dynamics. Fractured Family Dynamics. The reason I was drawn to this idea is because for two seasons I've watched this show I don't see it regularly every Tuesday night. I DVR it so I can kind of binge watch it four or five at a time on a weekend once in a while. And um, it really spoke to me because in the middle of all of their brokenness and dysfunction, there is an abiding family bond of love that holds them together in spite of a a, a handsome brother that's narcissistic, uh, a very, very insecure sister who's morbidly obese and dealing with the health problems that relate to that, having been raised by a father who was an alcoholic and went through AA and was able to get some freedom from that horrible addiction, and just all of the the various things, the the young African-American boy who was adopted when one of the triplets died in birth, and, and the strange dynamic that was encountered by a middle-class white family raising a young African-American boy and the challenges that he felt in that family, making him feel part and the other brothers and sisters feeling like that mom had shown him too much attention and made him a favorite in in, in order of trying to really make him be part of the family. When when you get into the story, it's really very interesting and it, it it captures you because there's so much love in the middle of all the junk. And maybe this is not your cup of tea, I'm drawn to it because I deal with people's hurts all the time. And when I am able to see victory, when I'm able to see deliverance come, when I'm able to see somebody, it's a look in somebody's eye when all of a sudden uh, an idea dawns on them and they recognize that, 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 that they're not so far gone that God won't give them a second chance. Matter of fact, if there's anybody in the room this morning and you're here and you're really wrestling with the idea thinking, you know, I don't deserve the second chance, let me just set, you, set the record straight right now. You didn't deserve the first chance. Are you with me? Nobody in the room did. No, I didn't, you didn't, nobody does. So, so get off of that religious kind of thinking and stop thinking, well, you know, God doesn't, des- you know, I don't deserve to get a second chance from God. None of us deserve the first chance in the first place. So thank God he'll give you the second and the third and the 23rd chance if you need it. Praise God because he loves us. And, and so there's something about that, just seeing people struggle through to the place of, now not just staying in your struggle, not just getting down in the pit and wallowing in it, but really struggling through to victory. 
seeing transformation take place in your life on various levels. Usually it is the composite of a spiritual pursuit and a mental transformation, a change in thinking. It involves picking up some new habits, maybe exercising yourself in uh, 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 some new rituals that will establish some new habits in your life. And, and usually it's victory comes because it is the combination. It is the synergistic approach of spiritual and mental and emotional and physical and financial and relational and all of those things finally coming together and creating an, an enormous amount of energy which has originated in, in God in the first place because he's the one who's given us all those things. And so when I see that, I'm drawn to that because I, I love to see people get healed. I love to see people uh, be, be um, made well from their emotional baggage and their bruises that life has given them. And there's probably not a better story in the Bible than the one that we're going to look at this morning about Joseph. The, the scripture says in Psalm 115, I'm sorry, Psalm 105. Let me grab this up. I'm having to use a handheld this morning because we're having some uh, distortion issues with our wireless uh, lapel. So I, I hadn't done this in years. I may have to get my <laughs> preaching groove on <laughs> since I'm holding it here. Psalm 105, verses 16 through 22, the psalmist says, He called for a famine on the land of Canaan, cutting off its food supply. Then he sent someone to Egypt ahead of them. He sent someone. It's talking about God. Then he sent someone to Egypt ahead of them. Joseph who was sold as a slave. They bruised his feet with fetters and placed his neck in an iron collar until, everybody say until. Until is a time word. It means it's not going to last forever. Come on, somebody, I want to put some hope in you. I'm going to inject a, a, a spiritual steroid into your bloodstream this morning. It's called the hope of God. Until the time came to fulfill the dreams, his dreams, the Lord tested Joseph's character. Everybody in the room right now is probably in some kind of an until. Until you see the promise fulfilled or the dream that you had. We sang about it this morning. God's calling out to dry bones. There's a, there's a graveyard of dead dreams in this room, and you've given up on some of them. They've been long buried, but God says, I haven't forgotten. And I'm going to resurrect them, and they're going to come to pass, and it'll be to my glory when he does it, he says. Until the time came to fulfill his dreams, the Lord tested Joseph's character. That's the part we don't like. We want instant success. We want to live with a faith-slash-lottery mentality where we just pray and confess a promise and God zips open the heavens and drops a million dollars into our lap. And if that were to happen, we would blow it in about six months because we're not ready to handle that kind of success. If we'll submit to the process, if we'll not quit in the middle of the struggle, if we'll let the Lord teach us what He has put us in there to teach us, in the first place, then it will prepare us and get us ready to handle the blessing when it shows up in our lives. I don't know about you, but I hadn't preached in a while, and I've got a big itch. I'm going to scratch it this morning. Hallelujah. Verse 20, then Pharaoh sent for him and set him free. The ruler of the nation opened his prison door. How many of you know God's opening some doors for some of you, and no man can shut them? 
Joseph was put in charge of all the king's household. He became ruler over all the king's possessions. He could instruct the king's aides as he pleased and teach the king's advisors. King James says he could teach his senators wisdom. One thing this morning, just look at it. Living in the experience of our circumstances dulls our perception of the hand of God's involvement. Walking by faith and not by sight instructs our trust in the God who works all things together for our good. Those are two theologically power-packed sentences that I want to unpack just for about the next 60 seconds. When you're living your life in the middle of the struggle, it's very difficult to look around and see the hand of God moving. Most of the time we feel like, God, why have you left me here in this God-forsaken armpit of a place? How many of you know what I'm talking about? God, why did you let these set of things happen in my life? What did I do to deserve this or what shouldn't I have done to prevent this? God, I don't understand. Where are you? Why have you left me? Living in the experience of our circumstances dulls our perception of the hand of God's involvement. Walking by faith and not by sight instructs our trust in the God who works all things together for our good. Now, do you understand what I'm trying to say? It's in those moments when you wonder where God is and why you're in the situation you are that real faith comes to play. When all the bills are paid and everybody's healthy and wealthy and wise, it doesn't take faith to live in that regard. It's very easy, but it takes faith when you are looking up through the bottom going, God, I don't know how we're going to make these ends meet. I don't know how we're going to come through this circumstance or, 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 or patch this broken family back together or make this thing work. That's when real faith comes on the line. That's when you're in the middle of a circumstance that you're looking around going, God, where are you and why don't you answer my prayers? That's where real faith comes uh, uh, to play where you, you begin to say, God, I don't see it, I don't understand it, but I choose to trust you. I walk by faith. I'm not gonna walk by what my natural eye sees, but I'm gonna walk by faith and not by sight. And because of that, I'm going to trust you because I know that you're the God who works all things together for my good because you're a good God and you're a powerful God. You're able and you're willing. Now that you've understood that and heard that, read it out loud with me. Let's read from a place of understanding. Here we go. Living in the experience of our circumstances dulls our perception of the hand of God's involvement. Walking by faith and not by sight instructs our trust in God who works all things together for our good. Bow your hearts with me together this morning for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we're overwhelmed at your goodness and your love for us. Thank you for your presence in this sweet worship this morning. Thank you for this team who led us into a place of rejoicing in your greatness. I look to you, O oh God, I need you. It was an old gospel song that I grew up hearing my mom and Aunt Lucille sing. If I ever needed the Lord before, I sure do need him now. And God, I need you. I need you every day and every hour, the song says. I ask you to get in the middle of my thoughts. Lord, 
Guard my heart and my words. Let me choose them wisely. I ask you, Lord, that I would be efficient with my time, that I would be effective with my words, and I would be clear in my thinking and what is shared with your people. In the middle of all of that, God, you've got to do it. Holy Ghost, you're the one who does it. You're the teacher. Lord, you're the one who speaks personally to every heart in this room. I, I don't have that ability, and I just acknowledge it right now. But you can take what I say, and you can handcraft it, and you can literally custom design it for every individual in this room. I ask you to do that. Lord, I, I rejoice for the young men that have been set free from their their prison of a, of, of a watery cave in Thailand this morning. Be with those divers. Give them wisdom and strength. Lord, strengthen the hearts of the families until they see their boy come out. God, we thank you for deliverance. Get glory out of this. Jesus, be strong in the midst of the nations, God. Pour out revival upon America. We desperately need it, O oh Lord. Please, God, please give our leaders some wisdom. Lord, in what they say and how they lead, oh God. We cry out to you for revival in the Delta. We ask you for these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said. Amen. I learned a principle in Bible school. It's my first point. It says worship and the principle of remembrance. When I get discouraged, I intentionally start thinking about where God has met me and where he's delivered me and where he's blessed me. One of the hymn writers during the Second Great Awakening wrote a great evangelical hymn that says, count your many blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God has done. And when you read the text that we just read from the book of Psalms, Psalm 105, it's the worship leader who is reminding the people of God how he delivered a young man by the name of Joseph from a pit and took him from that pit to a place of literally worldwide influence in the most powerful kingdom in the world at the time, which was the Egyptian kingdom under the Pharaohs. Joseph was just a little Hebrew boy who was shown favoritism by his father Jacob, and because of it, his brothers hated him, and they told a big lie and took his rainbow multicolored coat dipped it into goat's blood and lied and told the dad that, that Joseph had been eaten by an animal. Joseph grieved a son for years that was still alive and he didn't know it. And so this morning when I talk to you about this story and we look at this opening principle of worship and remembrance, it is reminding us, it's bringing into our remembrance. We start putting the body of our thoughts back together as members just like my arm and my fingers and my hand or my legs, they're all, all the joints fit together. These members are coming together. When I'm remembering in my thoughts, I'm recollecting, and I begin to pull back together the amazing turn of events that God did when I prayed and he answered my prayers. And, and the first thing that happens when I start employing the principle of remembrance is that I get thankful and gratitude starts to arise. Gratitude is an attitude. Gratitude is an attitude which acknowledges grace, which is something I didn't deserve, but God gives to me willingly. His favor is, is poured out upon me. 
And gratitude and thanksgiving are not the same thing because gratitude is the attitude, thanksgiving is the action. You can have gratitude for somebody in your life, but they won't ever know it until you show thanksgiving to them. I'm thankful for you. You bless my life. You encourage me. You lift me up when everybody else pulls me down. That's showing thanksgiving. I can be grateful all day long, but until I show the action of thanksgiving, nothing really begins to change. It's the action that starts to alter my thinking. As a matter of fact, thanksgiving is the password into the presence of God. Psalm 100 says, enter his gates with thanksgiving. Oh, yeah, I get that. I see that. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Enter his courts with praise. Psalm 100, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Well, I'm saying it the same way. It's just a 21st century way of saying it. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Thank you is the password into the presence of God. When I begin to employ the principle of remembrance, when I get discouraged and I get into a place of self-pity and I start thinking about the good things that the Lord has done, I'm giving myself a look what the Lord has done moment. Old school, black church. I grew grew up singing it. Look what the Lord has done. Choir's clapping about as fast as you can clap, you know. Look what the Lord has done. He healed my body. He touched my mind. He saved me just in time now. I'm going to praise his. I want to get on the piano, but I'm not going to do it. I'm going to praise his name. Each day he's still the same. Come help me praise him. Say it. Look what the Lord has done. You know, you can't help but get happy when you hear that song. And when you actually start to sing it, you really do get happy because there's just joy in it. When you start thinking about, my God, you showed up when I prayed. My God, I was sick and you healed my body. Lord, I was in need and you, you brought provision in the middle of my lack. Look what the Lord has done. And so the psalmist is saying that, 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 that Joseph was in this pit. God sent him ahead of time. He didn't know what was going on, but God was going to send him through a 13-year route of a prison sentence to bring him out to the place of the second seat of power, the highest seat of influence in the most powerful nation on the planet, the Egyptian kingdom. A little Hebrew boy named Joseph. When you start giving thanks to God, worship is produced. And so the, the psalmist is saying, look at all that God has done in the life of this one who was mistreated and betrayed, who was, who was lied on and cheated, whose brothers were envious of him and wanted to make it, they, they, they wanted to kill him, but they didn't actually go through with it. They just made it look like he'd been killed. And so worship began to arise as they began to remember. And as we look at the book of Genesis and we begin to move into Joseph's story in a little bit more detail, Genesis really is about six guys. Adam, Noah, Abram, who became, his name was changed to Abraham, to his son Isaac, Then his two sons, Jacob and Esau, we're going to stay with Jacob. Jacob wrestled with God himself in Genesis 32, and God changed his name from Jacob to Israel, which means prevailer or prince with God. So that's five. And then Joseph's, or I mean Jacob's son, Joseph. Now, when you read the book of Genesis, you have 50 chapters, and literally 12 of those 50 chapters are about this guy I'm preaching on today, Joseph. It's only the first three or four or five chapters that we hear about Adam. 
Then only a couple we hear about Noah. And then Abraham comes along and you get about 10 about him. And then same thing follows, just a few for Isaac. And then a few, a whole lot for Jacob. And then most of them for Joseph. And so these six guys make up this seed plot of the Bible. Genesis is referred to by theologians as the seed plot of the Bible. That means that every other major doctrine or idea that you find in all the rest of the Scripture, it begins in seed form in the book of Genesis. In a few moments, you're going to see that Joseph is a picture of Jesus. And I want to get ahead of myself because we'll get there when we get there. But when you start to look at Joseph's story, you remember that he was born into the family of Jacob who had two wives, Leah and Rachel. Jacob was tricked. Jacob's name means trickster, schemer, used car salesman. Forgive me if you sell used cars. I love you. It's just the easiest way to help people understand what we're saying here. You can be an honest used car salesman. I believe everybody in this church who sells used cars is. Jake, I love you, dude. I think they were in the first service. Johnny. But you get the idea of someone who's trying to con folk, okay? And so Jacob, who is the the big trickster schemer, gets tricked and schemed himself by his own father-in-law. And you remember he worked seven years for this woman that he was goggle-eyed over. Her name was Rachel. And he gets married and he wakes up the next morning after honeymoon night. And he looks at her and he's in the bed with the wrong woman. I wish I had time to preach on that one thought for the next 20 minutes, but I can't do it. That's another message. Get married and wake up in bed with the wrong woman. Some of you feel like you've been. Anyway, I'll leave that alone. Um, Ladies, you too. Man, who who is this man? He put on a whole different face until we said I do. Um, And so he goes back and works seven more years, and so he ends up with both of them, and he's got two sisters, and they're competing, and Leah's womb is open, and she starts having babies like crazy. Here comes Reuben, here comes Levi, I mean, sorry, Reuben and Simeon, and then Levi, and then Judah, and Rachel is the favored one. She's the one that Jacob really loves, and her womb is shut up. Can't have no children. That's best Arkansas I can say it in. Can't have no. Look at your neighbor and say, I hear him. I know what he's saying. I can't have no. She can't get pregnant. And she's upset about it, and she's praying. And finally, God honors Rachel's prayers and opens her womb. And when she delivers a baby, they name that baby boy Joseph because Joseph, Yosef in the Hebrew means he shall add another or another son comes or increase comes. All of those are, are intricately accurate translations of the Hebrew word Yosef. Another son comes, he shall add, he shall increase. Okay, so when Joseph and, I mean, sorry, when Jacob and Rachel had the baby, they named him, they were speaking prophetically over him that this is not the end to this. God's going to open your womb again, and we're going to have more children. Jacob and Rachel are going to have more children. All the while, Leah's just spitting out babies. And she quits, and here comes her handmaids. So all of these are children of Jacob's, but they're half-brothers and sisters because they have different mamas. But Joseph is loved above the rest. He's highly favored. 
Jacob sets a kind of love upon him that is, is a doting kind of spoiling kind of love and it makes the other brothers hate him. Favoritism is a bad thing. I, I, I believe that we ought to love all of our children, whether we have one or whether we have ten or however many we have, we should love each one with all of our heart. Somebody says, do you love your children the same? I go, no, because they're not the same. First of all, that's not a question of quantity for me. I don't quantify my love for my kids. I love both of them indescribably with all my heart. But they're related to me differently. Drew is, is the spit and image, or spirit and image is where that came from, of me. He, he walks like me. He talks like me. He's just, he is my son. He's my firstborn. So there is a unique relationship there. But Abby, Abby has a musical gift, and there's something that we relate in, and she's a worshiper and loves to worship the Lord. And, and Drew's the, the hunter, athlete, and all this outside, and we go do that stuff. But then when I want to play music, I'm, I'm with Abby, and I'm relating to her, and I love both of them indescribably. Do I love them the same? Absolutely not, because they're not the same person. I think it's a stupid question when you ask that. And I don't treat them always the same. Because when he turned 16, he got the keys to the car. She's seven years younger. She was nine. Am I, being un, am I being showing favoritism and being mean to her because I didn't let her drive too? No. Maturity creates privilege. Taking responsibility in your life brings promotion. Don't shout me down because I'm preaching so good right now. Come on, somebody. Look at your neighbor and say, we need to grow up. You want the blessing of God to come in your life? Quit blaming your problems on somebody else. Take responsibility. Get up off of your blessed assurance and start taking steps of faith and God will bring blessing because he will bless maturity. I'm going to preach this way and see if I can get some more response. Y'all are here. You ain't hearing what I'm saying. So, you know, now, now favoritism would be getting him a car at 16, but then not getting her one. No, that's not what I'm talking about. But different age, different maturity levels, different responsibility. But, but there's equity. But they're not always treated the same all the time. But there was something way, 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 way out of line with, with Jacob and Joseph. He had somebody sew him a multicolored coat. I mean, it's like everybody knows he's the teacher's pet. He's the father's favorite. Oh, we're just a bunch of, we're a herd of black sheep, and there's the prized son right there. And so he identifies him by sewing him a rainbow coat. Now, that's another message in itself because the rainbow, the, the electromagnetic spectrum in science, those seven colors of Roy G. Biv, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet, are likened to each of the seven spirits of God, and they reflect the majesty of God. So Joseph is clothed. He's a special son who's going to be a prophetic pointing to something that's yet coming. So he's walking around robed in the image of God in this rainbow coat. And he walks out to the field one day. And he's had some dreams that he's made the mistake of telling to half-brothers. How many know you better not tell your dreams to everybody that comes along? I've got dreams about the future ministry to this church and there's about a half a dozen people that I share those dreams with because a lot of people would just poo-poo those dreams. Oh, it can't be done. I've had people tell me for years, you will never build a multicultural, multiracial, red and yellow, black and white, all are precious in his sight church in the Delta. It can't be done. I said, you just hide and watch. It may take me a few years, but you just hide and watch. We're going to have a place where people come to and they have spiritual family because grace is bigger than race, no matter what your skin color. 
And if you think you're going to die and go to heaven and it's going to be segregated, you better wake your sorry excuse of a up. Matter of fact, I'm going to tell you right now, if it is segregated, I'm hanging out with the African-American section. That's all I've got to say because they got the best music. You can't be done, they'd say. And I'd say, you just hide and watch. We're going to see God do something great in the Delta. We're going to see... I don't want to chase a rabbit. Let me just, let's just pull Randy back in. He walks up in the field, and the brothers go, Here comes the dreamer. Genesis 37, verses 18 through 20. When Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him in the distance. Well, he's got that coat on. You wonder if the batteries came with it. As he approached, they made plans to kill him. See, some folk don't want to hear your dreams. Because your dreams make them feel small. Because they quit dreaming a long time ago. What, is, what happens? What happens when we encourage children? What do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be president. I want to be an astronaut. I want to be whatever. I want to be a doctor. And then something happens at some point. I think it's different for everybody, but something happens where you quit dreaming those dreams and people go, okay, let's get our feet back on the ground and go get you a real job. What if, what if you actually encouraged your children to keep dreaming their dreams and you did everything in your power along with trusting God to create resources to come the way so that the destiny that was created in seed form by desire that was put in the heart of that child could actually grow up and become a president? God knows we sure need some. I'll just leave that alone. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying this morning? What if... What if we, we quit trying to disconnect calling them fantasies and we said, you know what, if that's what's in your heart, then get up and work toward it. I'll pray and trust God. I'll give you everything I can in my power and my strength and my ability. But you're going to have to work. This is the part that something about the current milieu, the current state of the mentality in the American Dream. The idea is, is that it just has to come instantly, and we don't see that there's a period of waiting. There's a period of preparation. There's a period of work. Come on, somebody, help me a little bit this morning. They saw him coming, recognized him in the distance. He approached. They made plans to kill him. Put the next one up. Here comes the dreamer, they said. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. We can tell our father a wild animal has eaten him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. See, if you're a real dreamer, dreaming the dreams of God, that means you're dreaming something you can't do in your own strength. It's bigger than you are. And if, it's not, if you can do it in your own ability, then it's not God's dream for you. Because God will always give you something bigger than you can accomplish by yourself. I sure wish somebody would help me preach a little bit in this room this morning. God has some ideas and some dreams for you that would blow your mind. They're exceeding abundantly above all that you can even begin to ask or imagine. Bigger than you currently think. If you don't let the Lord begin to dawn on your thinking and think differently and transform your mentality out of a, an impoverished victim mentality where God can set you free from all of that nonsense just because your daddy was an alcoholic and your granddaddy was an alcoholic doesn't mean you have to be one too. God can set you free. You start dreaming dreams, and there will be a people, I guarantee you, there will be some half-brothers around you. I don't mean naturally in your literal family. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. Sometimes it can be the person sitting next to you in the same row. God help us. 
Help us not to poo-poo people's dreams. Now, also help us to stand up and go, hey, listen, I'm supporting your dream, but you need to get up. And as Bruce Hornsby, the prophet of God, said, get a job. (laughs) I'm going back to the 90s for that one. Sorry, y'all. You like that? (laughs) Don't waste your struggle. Don't waste your struggle. Joseph's in prison. You remember the story? Before he gets thrown in the pit by his brothers, his father dotes on him and pets him to the point that the brothers are sick of it. And so they they don't actually go through with their plan. They don't kill him, but they dip that coat in goat's blood and take it back. And Jacob grieves a son for decades who's still alive and he doesn't know it. Joseph is sold into slavery. Those marauding band of... Ishmaelites that were coming through that he was sold into, ended up selling him to a a homeowner by the name of Potiphar, a rancher. So he's in Potiphar's house, and the Bible says that the Lord was with Joseph. He's a slave, but God's with him. Now, there's something to be said for this. You might be in circumstances right now that you didn't choose. You very well could be the victim of, of a decision that somebody else made to do to you or for you, but you have a choice where you are. You you can choose how you're going to respond. You can choose the attitude that you're going to have in the middle of that. And your attitude is going to make every bit of difference as to how quickly you get out of it. Somebody say amen. amen. Joseph is in Potiphar's house and he's so blessed. He's in control of everything. His word, he is basically the Greek word oikos. He is the household manager. He's the farm manager. He's running everything. His word is more powerful than anybody's except for Potiphar's. He's been entrusted with the hired servants over all the flocks of the field, over the crops in the field, making decisions about the money, investments that they're making, and Potiphar trusts him literally in every kind of way. And this is what happens. Don't waste, look at your neighbor and say, don't waste your struggle. Genesis 39, verse 19. Potiphar was furious when he heard his wife's story about how Joseph had treated her. So he took Joseph and threw him into the prison where he remained. The king's prisoners were held and there he remained. Everybody say those last three words. There he remained. But the Lord was with Joseph in the prison and showed him his faithful love. Say that with me. The Lord is with Joseph. It says, and the Lord made Joseph a favorite. I love that. Look at that. The Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. Now, I I don't know if you remember the story, but let let me backtrack. Let's do a flashback and let me remind you why Joseph is in prison. He's been entrusted. He's a faithful young dude. As a matter of fact, if you read the Bible, the 12 chapters that are about Joseph are from about 37 on through about chapter 50. There's one that it skips and talks about Judah and Tamar. So in the 13 there, 12 of them are about Joseph. And Joseph is described as a very handsome, built young man. He's about 17 at the time. And he's, he's been hanging out at the gym. You know, he, he would have been on the cover of Israeli GQ or... Uh, uh, muscle and fitness or whatever. 
He's, he's built. The scripture literally says that he's built. So he's got muscles. He's, he's good looking. And Potiphar's wife is hot to trot. Is that too plain? I'm sorry. She's got the hots for young Joe. Joseph, come in the house. Come on in, Joe. I have a chore for you, Jojo. <laughs> I'm waking up all you old geezers that are trying to sleep on me this morning. <laughs> Just how plain is he going to get with this? Well, let me tell you what happens. Joseph always has trouble with his coats. She makes a pass at him, and he says in the moment, I can't do this because it would be a sin against God. And I can't do this because it would be a sin against my master, Potiphar, who's entrusted me with his whole business and his wife, and I'm not going to do this, this sinful thing. And she gets ticked off and yanks the coat from him while he flees and then screams rape, lies on him. Potiphar sends a posse out for him, and they get him and throw him into, into Pharaoh's prison, and the Scripture says, there he remained. He was in the bottom. He'd been in a pit by his own brothers. He'd been betrayed by his own family, sold into slavery. He's working for a dude, and God makes him a favorite of Potiphar. Potiphar's wife makes a pass. He tries to stay pure and do the right thing, and he gets thrown into prison. And in the middle of prison, the Bible says the Lord is with him. I I just want to get so real for a moment because I would have been indescribably ticked off. The Bible says that he stayed sweet in prison. There wouldn't have been nothing sweet about me in that spot. That stinking blankety-blank lying woman. Y'all don't even look at me in that religious tone of voice. You know you think it. You know you go home sometimes from your jobs and you just, you just like to give that woman a cussing. You know she needs a good cussing. Now, I know you don't do it because we're Christians. But you want to. That's exactly right. Come up here. You want to help me preach this message? Who said that? (laughs) How many of you know exactly what I'm talking about? You're frustrated. You're angry. You have been lied on. You've been betrayed. And you're going, God, what in the world is going on in my life? I see that you're here with me, but why don't you get my carcass up out of this place? I'm not interested in staying in the middle of this pit or this prison, even though I know that I'm the warden's favorite. The warden turned everything over to Joseph. As a matter of fact, if you read the rest of it, it says the warden, look at verse 22, before long the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners and over everything that happened in prison, the warden had no more worries because Joseph took care of everything. How many folk get lied on, betrayed, cheated, and keep such a good attitude in the middle of the struggle that they end up getting promoted right down there in the bottom of the pit? There's something godly about that. There's something something otherworldly that I don't have personally in my own humanity that I believe Joseph was able to tap into. (laughs) 
living in the experience of our circumstances dulls our perception of the hand of God's involvement. Walking by faith and not by sight instructs our trust in the God who works all things together for our good. Next point, from prison to palace. It's all about the attitude. Look, your neighbor say, it's all in your attitude. Life is 10% of what happens to us, Chuck Swindoll said, and 90% of how we respond to it, that's our attitude. Joseph stayed sweet in prison. He's down there in the middle of that dungeon, running things. Two of Pharaoh's servants show up. What is it, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker? Who is it here? It's the cupbearer to the king and the baker. You read about it in that whole 12-chapter section from 37 to 50 in Genesis. And they both have dreams. And they say, I had this dream, and I don't know what it means. And Joseph interprets the dreams for him. And the baker's dream comes to pass, and he dies in three days. And the cupbearer's dream comes to pass, and he's restored to his position as the cupbearer for the Pharaoh. And he goes back up, and as he's on his way out, Joseph says, remember me. Tell the Pharaoh about me. I, I don't belong down here. I'm innocent. I was lied on. The cupbearer says, yeah, man, I sure will. And you know what he did, but it was two years later when he remembered to tell the Pharaoh. Of course, that was all in the plan of God because Pharaoh had a dream. And he has that amazing dream about seven big fat cows that walked up out of the Nile and then seven gaunt, skinny, emaciated cows come up out of the Nile and they consume the seven fat cows. And he calls his astrologers and his soothsayers and his philosophers and sages and the wisdom men. And he says, I've had a dream. And they said, tell us what it is, O great Pharaoh, and we'll interpret it. He said, no, I've, I've, I got you. I've read your mail. I know how you guys operate. If I tell you what the dream is, you'll interpret it and just make up some stuff. If you really have the spirit of the divine, if you have the spirit of the gods, little g with an S, because Egypt worshiped multiple gods, if you really have the spirit of the gods in you, then you can tell me what my dream was and then interpret it. And they said, oh, great Pharaoh, nobody can do that. And the cup bearer sitting next to the king says, king, I know somebody who can do that. But he doesn't worship the gods of Egypt. He worships Yahweh. He worships the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the Pharaoh said, call him. Get Joseph. Come on up here, Joe. Pharaoh sent for Joseph at once, and he was quickly brought from the prison after he shaved and changed his clothes. That's a message in itself right there. Just take my word for it. I don't have time to stop and preach about what takes place when God actually brings your dream to pass and promotion comes. He went in and stood before Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream last night. No one here can tell me what it means, but I've heard that when you hear about a dream, you can interpret it. and You know the story. He not only interprets the dream, but he, by the Holy Spirit, tells Pharaoh what his dream was. Seven fat cows consumed by seven lean cows coming up out of the Nile. He said, sir, this is a great abundance. Harvest will overflow for seven years, but then there's going to be a famine in the land, and those seven years that have been stored are going to be totally consumed. And he said, that's the most amazing thing I've ever heard. You are immediately promoted to be prime minister, second under my command. He's been in the prison for 13 years. From 17 to 30. 
from the time that God laid hands through the prophet Samuel on David to become king to the time where David actually took the throne, he, had, he was anointed at 17 and he took the throne at 30. 13 years. Jesus was baptized by John on his 30th birthday. 30 in scripture is the number of maturity. Joseph took the throne as prime minister under Pharaoh at 30. David took the throne of Israel at 30. Jesus began his ministry at 30. Victory Church will be 30 January 8th, 2019. I don't think it's a coincidence in any way whatsoever. Let me just tell you, I didn't pause this and postpone it all these years just to be able to preach this message today because I was about to pull my hair out and lose my mind for a few years. God win. From the time Joseph had the dream until the time when he was second in command under Pharaoh, there was the 13-year period. And 13 in the Bible is the number of rebellion. Just because you have a dream to be a leader doesn't mean you're ready to be a leader. Just because you have a dream for a business doesn't mean you have the preparation to run a multi-million dollar business. It's going to be that pit time. It's going to be the cave time running from Saul, David. It's going to be looking at a mad king and deciding, that's how I don't want to govern this nation when I am made king. Come on, I'm preaching so good this morning. Are you guys hearing what I'm saying? You've got a dream in your heart and it's not dead. Oh, you've buried it, but it's still alive. It's under the soil of your soul, and it's still alive. And God says, at the right time, until his word came, the Bible says the Lord's word tested Joseph's character. Because it's when you deal with the nasty, nitty-gritty now and now, that the day-to-day stuff that God puts steel in your backbone and helps you rise up and become the woman that God has called you to be and the man of character that you have to be to be the leader and the influencer that he has for you. There's a destiny on the lives of the people in this church. You can just float around and just not ever pay any attention to it, or you can rise up and get serious about it and get out of the boat and put your best foot of faith forward and start walking on the water, and God will show up. Come on, somebody. Look at your neighbor and say, man, he's preaching good this morning. Keep your dreams, Joseph. Psalm 105, 17 he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. The crazy thing is, is that when we look at this in a psalm, in a principle of remembrance, Joseph didn't know that's what was happening. He thought his dreams had all died. You know what? The thing is, is that if you just don't quit, as long as you keep going, if there's breath in your lungs, there's still hope. As long as you don't quit... When you quit and throw in the towel, then God says, okay, I'll, I'll honor your decision. But when you, when you just keep on getting up and putting one foot in the front of the other, whether you feel like it or not, and I'm preaching from my toenails where I have been the last 20 months of my life going, God, I will not quit. I choose joy. I thank you for tenacity. I thank you, Lord God, you're going to strengthen me, Lord. Until the time that his word came, the word of the Lord tried him. Some of you got some dreams right now and they're just frustrating you. They're just ticking you off because you can't sleep at night because you know that God put them in there, but you haven't seen them begin to manifest yet. God says, okay, you're in that 13-year period. Now, it may not literally be 13 years for you, but it's always going to be a season of preparation in everybody's life because from the pit to the palace... God wants to teach you a principle. 
You're going to have to learn how to walk and listen and, and not give up. I talked to a young, young guy in our church, just started a new business. He took a picture of the church coming up out of the ground. He grew up with my son, Drew, and he sent me this, and he texted, and he said, I love you, Mr. Michael. He said, your life is a real encouragement and a testimony to me of not quitting. And I sent it back to him. And I'm going to tell you his name is because a lot of you know who he is. And I just said, man, let me tell you two secrets to success. Number one, the, the, the first principle to, to success is just showing up. And the second one is never quitting. So get up and get out of bed and show up. And may, by the way, have a good attitude when you get there. But then don't quit. Look at your neighbor and say, don't quit. Are y'all getting anything out of this this morning? All right. The typology of this is so phenomenal. Because this isn't just about a boy named Joe, a Hebrew young man who becomes a slave. This is a picture of Jesus. Look at these similarities. Listen, both Jesus and Joseph, he is the object of the Father's special love. He had promises of divine exaltation. He was mocked by his family. Joseph was, so was Jesus. He was sold for pieces of silver. He was stripped of his robe. He was delivered up to the Gentiles. He was falsely accused. He was faithful amid temptation. He was thrown into prison. He stood before rulers. His power was acknowledged by those in authority. He saves his rebellious brothers from death when they realize who he is. Joseph saved his own brothers with some bread when he revealed himself. Jesus saves his own brothers with his blood and the bread of his body when we recognize who he is. Come on, somebody help me this morning. Isn't that good? He's exalted after and through humiliation. He embraces God's purpose even though it brings him intense physical harm. He is the instrument God uses at the hands of the Gentiles to bless his people. He welcomes Gentiles to be part of his family. He gives hungry people bread. People must bow their knee before him. Was true of Joseph? It's true of Jesus. Joseph is a picture of one who is coming. Our heavenly Joseph. The one who was betrayed and lied on. The one who kept the right attitude in the middle of all of the humiliation. The one who didn't give anybody a cussing. The one who didn't slap somebody or lay hands on them suddenly. The one who walked and demonstrated what love is. Living in the experience of our circumstances dulls our perception of the hand of God's involvement. Walking by faith and not by sight instructs our trust in the God who works all things together for our good. This is great. I'm excited. I think you guys have been blessed by this, but I would, I would fail if I didn't give you these just real quickly, one sentence practicals. Everybody say, make it practical. Here we go. Number one, don't show favoritism. Don't, 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 make, don't make a child in your family a black sheep. Even if they make, he makes himself or she makes herself one, love them anyway. Love them through to victory. Come on, somebody. Use wisdom when telling your dreams. Everybody can't take it because your big dreams makes them feel small because they've, they've given up on their dreams. I, I have a handful of people that I, I tell dreams to about the next two, five, ten years. Dreams about outreach and things that we want to do in this city. I don't tell them to everybody. I, once, once I've gotten the support of those main encouragers in my life and they're going, man, we're on board, let's do it, then that doesn't matter what anybody else thinks because we're going to do it, bless God. Y'all hear what I'm saying? Because some folk will just poo-poo it. 
Some, some folk, that, uh, they, find, they find a problem in every solution. They don't find a solution for every problem. Don't shout me down. Deal with envy. It will kill you. Everybody in this room has gifts and talents. Everybody's is not the same. Quit looking at somebody else and wishing you had their gift. Find out the one that God gave you and walk in it. And know this, jealousy and envy are not the same thing. Jealousy is godly. God is jealous. He's jealous over you. Just like a husband will look at his wife, his lovely, beautiful, attractive wife, and see other men trying to make plays for her, and he's jealous over her because she is his. God is jealous over his people, his sons and daughters, because you are his. You belong to him. Jealousy is a good thing. The word jealous and the word zealous are the exact same two Hebrew words. If you're zealous for the things of God, then you're jealous for God's presence. But envy is the bad thing. Envy is when you want something of somebody else's that is not yours. Somebody else's finances, somebody else's looks, somebody else's influence, somebody else's job, somebody else's talent. Then you're going to hurt yourself and you're going to hurt them too. Because you're envying what somebody else has. It's theirs. It's not yours. Find out what you have and let God invest and build it. Come on, somebody. Say amen. Walk by faith, not by sight in your circumstances. We've preached that already. The current struggle prepares you for the next challenge. Look at your neighbor right now and say, don't waste your struggle. I've had to learn to embrace the pain. And say, God, let me get a good drink of this. Because I know there's something in this for my next step, for my next challenge. It's all about attitude. Everybody say, keep a good one. And then finally this morning, and I'm finished, never turn down a chance to reconcile. There are folk in this room that are carrying stuff that you still get stirred up about it. It's like it happened to you last week because you won't let it go. And until you're willing to forgive the person who hasn't even said, I'm sorry yet, you're going to keep yourself locked up in a prison of bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness. And all that stuff can become dis-ease. There are emotional connections to arthritis and cancer. All kinds of things that we don't let God bring healing to our psyche, to our soul, our mind, our will, our emotions, and we carry this junk around and we're holding, harboring bitterness and anger and frustration, wanting to cuss somebody all the time, wanting to slap somebody all the time. Joseph got to the place, things, it wasn't a matter of things changing, things just become more tolerable. But he got to the place where he was able to start to let it go, what his brothers did to him and what Potiphar's wife lied on him about. And the first son that he bore, the first son that he and his wife had as a new leader on the throne of Egypt, he named him Manasseh. Manasseh means forgetfulness. Everybody in this room has had something done to you or you've done something that you don't want anybody else in here to know about. We've made choices. Some of us are in a pit right now because of our own choices that we've made. Some of us are in a pit because of choices other people made, and we're a victim. But I want to tell you, you don't have to stay in that place. Even if you're still in circumstances that you didn't choose, let God begin to birth a baby in your life, in your soul, to birth Manasseh, to birth forgetfulness. And what that means is forgiving. You're letting it go. 
even, you know, maybe he was an alcoholic father. Maybe he was a drug-addicted mother. Maybe it was not that. Maybe you grew up in a nice upper-middle-class home and, and, and dad was a workaholic and mom was a shopaholic. And there was no love there like you know there should have been. And there's fighting and bickering and they end up in divorce and all that kind of stuff. It all doesn't have to be on the low end of poverty. It doesn't have to be drugs and alcohol. It can be all kinds of things that make people holics. When you know there's not wholeness. Something, maybe you were the black sheep because you just got sick of it and rebelled and God, I can't live like this. I can't live in this, quote, Christian hypocrisy. I can't live in this churchianity because my, my folks act like one thing on Sunday morning and then just live like hellions all week just beating on each other. Maybe not literally, but verbally. It's just a cussing match all week long. You know what? You can be the breaker that says, no, I'm going to break that chain. My granddaddy was an alcoholic. My daddy was an alcoholic. But bless God, I'm going to break that curse and I'm not going to be one. Abuser, abuser, I'm not going to be one. In debt, in debt, nope, not going to be one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get debt free. I'm not going to live like that. Everybody in the room's got a story. Everybody's had something done to you. Everybody's done something. And so the whole point is this morning is that you want to, you want to reach out and grab a hold of the Lord and His promise and say, God, help me to birth forgetfulness. Help me to birth a baby named Manasseh in my soul. And guess what? That wasn't the end of it. Because once Manasseh came along, then another one came real quickly. And his name was Ephraim. And Ephraim means fruitfulness. You guys want success in your life? You want the Lord to bless what you put in your hand to? You can't birth fruitfulness and success until you're willing to birth a baby and name it forgetfulness. God, I'm going to let all this go. I'm choosing to reconcile. I'm choosing to forgive the people who did me wrong the blankety-blankety-blank woman that lied on me and put me in this pit, in this prison. I forgive her. I'm going to let it go. I'm not going to carry bitterness or a grudge. You know something? The only way you can do that is to recognize that there was one who came and died for us who was in every way betrayed and lied on and cheated. And yet he stretched his hands out on a wooden cross and he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know. They're just, they're just ignorant. They don't know. But Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing to me. And I just absorb it. Let forgive, forgiveness and forgetfulness be their portion. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I believe God wants to bring fruitfulness in your life.